Good morning. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to thank uh, the new criterion for inviting me to this symposium and for all of you for, to, for coming. Um, since they began opening their doors to the public towards the end of the 18th century, art museums have been repositories of superior art. They have attempted to separate the wheat from the chaff, the permanent and profound from the inferior and transient. They display objects judged by the eye of history to be the most important of the civilizations that produce them. They have been places where visitors view art of the highest order, sanctuaries that offer enlightenment, inspiration, wisdom, and solace, far from the hurly-burly of daily life. But beginning in the 60s, the idea of museums as sentinels of excellence, education, and expertise was challenged as antiquated, elitist, and just plain wrong. In the last several decades, this postmodern trend towards cultural relativism has accelerated alarmingly. <clears throat> there are, as we shall see, ongoing attempts to willfully abandon curatorial authority and quality in order to turn museums into something between a town hall and a community center. And amazingly, directors and curators themselves are leading these efforts. Museums have long encouraged curators outside their institution to plan or collaborate on exhibitions. But traditionally, these have been qualified people with the necessary training and experience to do so. But now, individuals without these credentials are being urged to share or to make important decisions that affect the very nature of these places. It's a little like asking someone who has never played the game to judge a tennis match. This is nowhere better seen than in the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Last year, the museum launched an online survey, survey describing six possible exhibitions. It asked its respondents, quote, based on the description above, how likely would you be to visit the IMA, Indianapolis Museum of Art, to view this exhibition? Among the six were <clears throat> the art of forgery, Japanese painting, the rise of robotics, hot cars, high fashion, cool stuff, and orchids. By conducting the survey, the museum invited anyone with an internet connection, whether museum members, visitors, or anyone who just wanted an offer an opinion, to weigh in on what sorts of exhibitions were worthy of support and production. Now, it's quite possible that some of the respondents had deep pockets of knowledge about art and museums. But it's more likely that the vote was less informed, really a popularity contest. The results of the survey have not been released. But I bet on hot cars, cool stuffs, or robotics over Japanese painting. In another attempt to evolve the community in some of its curatorial decisions, the museum established an Office of Art Grievance. <laughs> Managed by the museum's public project team, it provides, quote, a system for the public to formally file a complaint against art, either generally or specifically. 
Complaints are sent to the Orwellian-sounding Office of Art Resolution. Quote, where an official will attempt to remedy the art-related issue, unquote. The purpose of the office is to produce a feedback loop between audience and institution, creating, quote, an opportunity to examine the things about art that cause us distress and angst. Now, whether this feedback loop directly influences decisions about which works the museum hangs or what sort of exhibitions it mounts, it is unclear, is unclear. But one can be fairly certain that this will cause curators to think twice about displaying an object that has a rap sheet. And, it will, and will the museum begin to think about its galleries as safe spaces, devoid of microaggressions that might in some way cause angst to its visitors? It's, it's really hard to believe that this is not a hoax. But the museum has a detailed website describing the activities of this office. Now, by subcontracting some of its traditional curatorial responsibilities to the public, the Indianapolis Museum of Art, which, by the way, now has an 18-hole miniature golf course, is following the lead of a number of other institutions. The golf course is free with the price of admission to the museum. So you can skip the galleries and play miniature golf. So, for example, the, in 2010, the Minneapolis Walker Art Center organized an exhibition called 50-50. Audience and experts curate the paper collection. The gallery displayed 183 images of works on paper on its website and pre presented it to the public, or what the Walker calls tellingly, the audience. Respondents were to vote definitively, or maybe not, which I assume the Walker counted as a no, on which works were to be included in the exhibition. Around 250,000 people voted. The Walker's chief curator said that she, quote, was interested in enabling a public voice in this exhibition, unquote, and taking, quote, advantage of the natural impulse people have when encountering art to form an opinion. It's kind of earth-shaking. Exactly how informed these opinions could be from looking at 183 electronic images of objects that most of the voters have never seen is questionable. As Robert Hughes remarked aptly, the relation of a, rep of a reproduction to an actual work of art is that of a shrunken head to a real one, unquote. Nonetheless, the Walker's website claims that Quote, this shared experience sparks a range of questions about the dynamics between audience and experts or between curatorial practice and so-called mass taste. And that exercise, quote, touches on a broader contrast between the art of making aesthetic judgments in an online context and the experience of looking at and thinking about art up close without time constraints. This is the sort of thing, I think, that's aided and abetted by the museum's education department. But a grant recently awarded to the Walker by the St. Paul-based Bush Foundation encourages an even larger transformation of the traditional role of the museum. 
A Walker press release states that the grant will transform how the museum operates in, quote, a rapidly changing landscape in which, in which the conventional roles of artist as sole creator, audience as passive receiver, and curator as institutional gatekeeper are being rewritten, unquote. Here the role of the curator as institutional gatekeeper is being challenged, as well as that of the artist's conventional role as a single creator of art. And I very much doubt that many of the visitors to the Walker are simply passive receivers, and to call them such is a bit condescending. With funds provided by the Bush Foundation, the release continues, the museum will change, quote, the rules of engagement, unquote with artists and the audience by inviting the latter to become active participants in the creation and interpretation of its programs. Seattle's Fry Foundation collection is also changing the rules of engagement. Last year, it posted all of its 232 paintings on the social media sites, Instagram, Pinterest, and Tumblr for what it said was a crowd-curated event. Viewers were told, quote, it's the thing where you, and there's a little heart symbol, like an image that painting goes, that painting goes, that painting goes in the exhibition. You do what you do, like what you like, unquote. The museum bragged that it was disrupting museum practice by turning, quote, the fry over to you, unquote. The most liked paintings were to be displayed in, displayed in the museum along with the respondents' names, and in some cases, their comments. And in fact, the exhibition features the names and scores of survey takers on its gallery walls. An excellent example of a narcissistic selfie culture of social media. In 2015, the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History went a step beyond the selfie. It solicited not votes or comments from an online audience, but actual objects to be included in an exhibition entitled Everybody's Ocean. Anyone who lived in Central or Northern California was invited to submit a piece. It was, the museum claimed, a chance for them to offer, quote, salty, seaworthy, sultry, swirling visual art about the sea, unquote. There was no explanation about what constituted seaworthy art. Painted surfboards? The museum has listed some suggestions for works that might qualify for acceptance. They included that drawing by a two-year-old that has been hanging on your refrigerator for several months, or some video shot while surfing. The sole requirement was that the entry had to depict the author's personal relationship with the ocean, presumably the Pacific. Of course, there was no mention of quality because it was assumed that all objects submitted would be worthy of a museum exhibition, including, I would assume, a paint by numbers of the Pacific Ocean. 271 pieces were submitted for this New Age exhibition. Some of these, the museum says, said, were curated. I suppose that's by the museum personnel while others were crowdsourced, which must mean they were accepted simply because they were submitted. Everybody's Ocean was rightly met with criticism in the national and local press 
for its abandonment of the standards that museums traditionally uphold when they display works, either from their own collections or borrowed for special exhibition. One brave curator at the Santa Cruz Museum quit, saying that her duties included researching and selecting works for exhibitions which have aesthetic experience, but when the institution fails to uphold those responsibilities, quote, no one wins, unquote. Justin Hoover, a museum official, brushed off potential complaints from professional artists that their work would be displayed next to pieces by amateurs. He wondered, quote, why is it that we should define their works as better than the works in question, unquote. Even the possibility of one thing being better than another doesn't exist in the postmodern world of Mr. Hoover. The quaint notion that museums are deciders of quality, arbitrators of quality, is a thing of the oppressive past where curators dared to pass judgment on art. The Santa Cruz Museum is directed by Nina Simon, one of the apostles of the museum as community center. An engineer by training, she came to the Santa Cruz Museum from the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., determined to shake things up. And indeed, she has exceeded in increasing attendance at the museum through exhibits like Everyone's Ocean. But at what price? And um, just recently, I, I ran across a um, statement from, uh, I want to say the Tate, but Tate Exchange, uh, the new gallery in the recent um, expansion. And what it says is, and I just, to show you, this isn't confined to small museums or the Minneapolis or Walker. What the Tate says is, Tate Exchange is about the exchange of ideas and artists working with the public. It's part of, the Tate, of Tate's strategy for community engagement. From a small charity in the Welsh Valleys to a community radio station in East London to healthcare trusts, volunteer groups, and university departments, organizations and members of the public will have a chance to become involved in the Tate's creative process. Museums of any sort that relinquish their curatorial function to their visitors are now in luck. They are about to receive the blessing and encouragement and support, millions of dollars of it, from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Leading this postmodern charge is William Bro Adams, the NEH chairman appointed by President Obama in 2015. In a recent interview with Museum Magazine, he laid out his vision. Quote, the museum as cloistered place, museums as cloistered place, places are breaking down into museums as community embedded institutions, unquote. Museums, he added, quote, are much more public facing entities, unquote, and their audiences are increasingly interactive and integrated into public life of their, of the public life of their communities. Of course, this statement conveniently slights the important public roles that museums have played in Western culture because it's not quite what Mr. Adams has in mind for their future. Karen Middleman, and if this symposium does nothing else, it will have put Karen Middleman on the map. <laughs> Karen Middleman, Mr. Adams, Director of Public Programs at the NAH, the division that funds museums and their programs, 
sometimes up to a million dollars a piece, thinks like her boss. In a revealing article for Humanities, the NEH's glossy house organ entitled Museums in the Age of Social, she lays out her vision for the brave new world of museums. After serving the NEH's history of support for large-scale traveling exhibitions, she declares them more or less artifacts of the past. Now she claims museum leaders are switching, nameless museum leaders are switching direction and putting more emphasis on community engagement. She declares that the field is changing and, quote, it's time for the NEH to change with it, unquote. In the recent past, we are told, museum visitors would see galleries full of objects chosen by a curator who, as Middleman puts it, gave authoritative voice to what one saw. Nowadays, she explains, quote, this kind of static display seems almost antiquated, unquote. Here, of course, the implication is that the authoritative voice itself is passe, that the old-fashioned judgment about, sort of judgment about quality and worth is not necessarily a good thing, except, of course, when Middleman is exercising it to dole out grants. Today, she writes, the many institutions funded by the NEH increasingly serve as town halls, places where citizens can come together to talk and debate issues of significance in their communities. Some readers of Middleman's words may wonder why such conversations can't take place in real town halls, not pretend ones. The role of the museum, she says, is, quote, being reimagined from within and without amounting to an epic shift in expectations, unquote. Mr. Uh, Mr. Adams and Middleman want to bestow the NEH imprimatur and shower taxpayers' dollar on recent effort, like some of those we have seen above, to turn museums from sanctuaries of art into community centers. It is likely they will have some success, as I observed from my stint at the NEH, when money, sometimes a considerable amount of it, is offered many institutions tend to align their thinking with NEH grant guidelines. But the NEH shouldn't be leading from behind by backing trendy efforts that undermine the time-tested traditional role of museums to carefully curate, research, display, and make critical judgments about the quality and importance of art. It must uphold standards instead of debasing them by encouraging the dumbing down of museums that willfully outsource their most basic duties and responsibilities in order to degrade them. Let community organize, organize, if they must, but just not in museums. Thank you.